X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Emily Gilliland from Portland, Oregon. It's Tuesday, February 16th. Today, back in the day in 1945, Alaska passed the U.S.'s first anti-discrimination law of the 20th century. Indigenous people in Alaska had long been victims of segregation and disenfranchisement. In 1905, the Nelson Act separated the school system into white schools and Alaska native schools. For decades, members of the Alaska Native Brotherhood, or ANB, and the Alaska Native Sisterhood, or ANS, they held protests and boycotts against segregated establishments. The organization sought help from then-Governor Ernest Groening, who supported their mission to end segregation. After several failed attempts, the anti-discrimination bill was introduced to the state's legislature. Many attribute its success to the two-hour-long testimony given by Elizabeth Paratrovich, vice president of the ANS and member of the Tlingit Nation. According to the Daily Alaska Empire, her speech, quote, shamed the opposition into a defensive whimper. The bill was signed into law on this day in 1945, making Alaska the first state to end Jim Crow in the 20th century. Today, back in the day in 1893, Portland's interurban line opened service to Oregon City. Portland was home to one of the country's first interurban electric railways. The first rail cars in Portland ran on the Portland Selwood and Milwaukee Railway. The railway was built as a real estate promotional line. Construction began in 1890. Service started from Portland to City View Park in Selwood, a popular horse race track. The first passengers rode in June of 1892. Service to Oregon City, a 16-mile-long line, began on this day in 1893. The Oregonian described the journey, reporting, quote, the formal opening of the East Side Railway Company's electric line between Portland and Oregon City took place yesterday afternoon and was made the occasion of quite a demonstration at the Falls City. At 2.10 p.m., the company's car, Helen, left the corner of Madison and 2nd. The line ran until 1958. February is Black History Month. X-Ray is focusing on some of history's most noteworthy Black Oregonians. Today, we're recognizing Paul Knowles, owner of the legendary nightclub, The Cotton Club. Paul Knowles was born in Huntington, Arkansas in 1931. After joining the Air Force in 1949, Knowles became the first African-American to be stationed at Fairchild Air Force Base in Spokane. Knowles worked three jobs at a time to save up for his dream of opening a business. After visiting Portland, he decided on owning a nightclub in the city and bought the Cotton Club from the previous owner in 1963. Knowles turned the formerly run-down location into a hotspot, visited by national celebrities like Sammy Davis Jr., Cab Calloway, and Duke Ellington. Knowles owned several businesses around the historical center of Black Nightlife on North Williams Avenue. The Cotton Club closed in 1970, but Knowles has been known ever since as the mayor of Northeast Portland. Knowles turned 90 in January. On today's episode, we're going to start with your quick six news headlines, and we have an interview with Street Roots Executive Editor Joanne Jewell. Joanne shares the paper's new interview series with the new Portland City Councilors. 
X-ray. First up, though, it's time for today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. Portland General Electric is working to restore power in Portland, but full repairs could take days. As of Monday morning, more than 300,000 households in Oregon and southwest Washington don't have power. That includes about 200,000 households in Multnomah and Clackamas counties. And in the Salem area, 71,000 people still don't have power. As a result, the Oregon legislature canceled all official work on Monday and Tuesday. That included a floor session in the House where lawmakers were expected to vote on a resolution to potentially expel Representative Diego Hernandez. More on that later. PGE says it's bringing in crews from Montana and Nevada to help speed up repairs. Outside of the metro area, Pacific Power restored power to smaller towns in the Willamette Valley on Monday afternoon. Transportation is faring a little better. TriMet is resuming limited bus and max line service today. And I-84 is open once again. Still, please be careful on the roads because they're still icy and full of snow. And now it's time for your daily dose of data. The Oregon Health Authority reported 184 new coronavirus cases yesterday. There were no new deaths. Oregon has now had a total of 150,464 cases and 2,137 deaths since the pandemic began. Last week, there were 30% fewer new coronavirus cases than the week before. New cases declined most significantly in Multnomah, Marion, and Washington counties. And in the U.S., the number of new daily cases has dropped below 100,000 for the first time since November. Vaccination sites in Oregon and southwest Washington are reopening. On Monday, Oregonians aged 75 and older became eligible for the vaccine. Healthcare providers, educators, prisoners, and Oregonians over 80 are still in the process of getting vaccinated. So far, the state has used 77% of its vaccine doses. Sadly, four fully vaccinated Oregonians have tested positive for COVID-19. Cases like these were expected. The vaccine is 95% effective, which means that there's still a 5% chance of getting a mild COVID infection. The four Oregonians had either no or very mild symptoms. It is a reminder to everyone to still wear your masks, even if you've been vaccinated. And as always, stay back. 14,000 Oregonians were denied wildfire relief from FEMA. Thousands of Oregonians lost their homes and belongings in the wildfires that blazed this summer and early fall. Many of those homes belong to low-income or disabled Oregonians living in rural areas. Oregon already allotted millions of dollars to wildfire relief, but many are still in need of federal relief. But the complicated process of receiving FEMA relief disadvantages low-income and historically marginalized people. FEMA's claim verification is prone to mistakes. Claims can be denied due to clerical errors, misspellings, or language barriers. Claims are often denied for those with unconventional living situations. That includes things like living out of a sublet room or in certain types of mobile homes. Claim denials are correlated with income. Data shows that after Hurricane Harvey, FEMA applicants making under $15,000 annually were denied about half the time. But for applicants making over $70,000 annually, claims were denied only 10% of the time. 
Following Oregon's wildfires, FEMA issued a press release encouraging people to appeal their claim denials. But those appeals can be complicated and time-consuming. Of the 290 Oregonians who appealed their claim denial, only 40 were approved. Representative Diego Hernandez, facing possible expulsion, filed a lawsuit against the state legislature. Representative Hernandez was accused of sexual harassment after five women came forward, saying he created a hostile work environment. The House Conduct Committee held a week of hearings with the accusers, Representative Hernandez's lawyer, and independent investigators. They found 18 incidents of sexual harassment or a hostile work environment. After that, the committee moved to expel Hernandez. The full House was going to vote on whether to expel Hernandez today, Tuesday, February 16th. But the ice storm and power outages put the vote on hold. Now, Representative Hernandez is suing the Oregon legislature and House Speaker Tina Kotek. Most importantly, the lawsuit seeks to stop the House from proceeding with the expulsion vote. Hernandez also wants $1 million in emotional damages plus attorney fees. The lawsuit claims that Hernandez was not given a meaningful chance to respond to accusations of harassment. The next scheduled House floor session is on February 23rd, and we'll keep you updated. Some Oregon lawmakers will introduce a bill to help their staffers unionize. Capital staff have long been working to unionize, but in December last year, the legislature argued that it would be unconstitutional. This legislative session, 29 Democrats are working to help unionize staffers. Their bill, Senate Bill 759, was the brainchild of Senator Mike Dembro from Portland. The bill would tweak the state policy governing public sector unions. It clarifies that the Capitol's legislative administrator is the one who bargains with unions. The proposed bill mirrors one passed in 1983 that allowed employees in the judicial branch to unionize. In fact, the vast majority of employees in most state agencies are unionized. Still, opponents say that things are different for legislative staffers. They argue that because aides have a wide range of responsibilities, they may have confidential or supervisory roles that prevent union membership. And since aides for different lawmakers are often working for opposing goals, they don't meet the legal standards for a community of interest that a union needs. For now, some legislative staffers have a petition to be recognized as a union, which we will be presented to a judge on February 25th. And finally, some good news. It's Blazer Night. It's an away game against the Oklahoma City Thunder. The Blazers are on a four-game winning streak after their defeat of the Dallas Mavericks. So far, Portland has 16 wins and 10 losses against the Thunder, who have 11 wins and 15 losses. This time around, the odds are in Portland's favor. So if you've got power... <laughs> 5 p.m. tonight is a good time to turn on the TV and cheer on our hometown team. And that's today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. X-Ray. Street Roots Executive Editor Joanne Zuhl joins X-Ray's Julia Oppenheimer to discuss recent interviews with the newest Portland City Councilors. What are the plans past the campaign rhetoric? Here are Joanne and Julia. Good morning, Joanne. Good morning. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. I just do want to be clear for our listeners that I'm the executive editor for Street Roots and uh, 
director. We always do that. It says (laughs) executive editor here, but I think people just see executive and then an E and they just say, yep, I've done uh, it myself. I've done it myself, (laughs) to be honest. It's my and it's my own job title. (laughs) Thank you for that. Yeah, we're just so used to saying executive director. It's just like rolls off the tongue a little better, I guess. Um, So what are you working on right now? And I see you've been working on a new three part series or a new series. Yeah, we've started. Um, so the city council, Portland City Council, has three new members this year. Uh, well, certainly one of them, Dan Ryan, joined um, last fall. Uh, he replaced the position left open by the death of Commissioner Nick Fish. So he came on a little earlier. But him and Carmen Rubio and uh, Mingus Maps have joined the city council, and we have done interviews uh, with all three of them, with really wanting to get their priorities for year one. Um, so hopefully, you know, we want to be able to get into some more, more specifics about what they plan. Let's let's put the campaign rhetoric behind us and really look at what we can measure accomplishments by in 2021, because certainly the, the city has uh, a lot to do. Yeah, so you started out with um, your interview with Dan Ryan. What were some of the main takeaways? Well, he uh, he is going to be heading up the uh, Joint Office of Homeless Services, uh, the Housing Bureau, and uh, the Development Services Bureau of Development Services. So they're a little interconnected. Um, certainly, his focus is on uh, the houselessness uh, concerns in our community, and houselessness, economic recovery, and community safety are three of the priorities he identifies for this year. And I don't think any of those come to, you know, to the surprise of our readers. Uh, but in those, in that area, particularly with uh, homelessness, there's a lot of potential. There's a lot of conversations happening right at the start of this year and at the end of last year about opening up um, city policies to allow new ideas and changing zoning laws, for example, around shelters and where shelters can be located and where uh, RVs might have a safe place to park, thinking about alternative shelters, thinking about tiny home communities. Um, So there's a lot on the table to discuss, and I think a lot of people, uh, both uh, housed and unhoused, will be looking at uh, Commissioner Ryan to see where he's going to, where he's going to take this and how far it's going to go. Yeah, he was actually on our program on Monday, and then we re-aired it this morning. And he, uh, one of the questions that was asked to him that I thought was a really good question was, "What? Uh, how will you know if you're successful?" And it's such a big problem with homelessness that he's tackling. And he said, basically, um, "I'll know if I'm successful if the conversation starts." Right. Right. Well, you know, to be honest, I think the conversations have been happening an awful lot to you know for years now. This is. Uh, and, and I think that's one of the frustrating issues right now is that we have been talking about this for a long time, for many years, and how are we going to actually see uh, a difference on the ground and uh, one that the whole community can get behind and not one that just pits one side against the other. So, you know, it's a tall order. I think there's a lot, on, and it's not just on Commissioner Ryan's plate, really, the whole commi- uh, city council uh, has a lot to address when it comes to how we think about housing people who don't have the financial means to you know do it in a conventional way so speaking of dan ryan he was recently involved in a big decision surrounding the tiny home community hazelnut grove can you tell us a bit about that 
Sure. So Hazelnut Grove, if your listeners are maybe a little new to this uh, uh, this community, essentially, is now five years old. And this is a community that's out in uh, basically, unless you actually went there as a destination, you've probably never seen it. It's between North Greeley and Interstate and uh, tucked away. And this uh, community is now slated. It was never a sanctioned village, but uh, the city is going to cut off trash and um, toilet maintenance services to it and is telling it it has to move and relocate to a different uh, community that's been built and now run by another nonprofit up in St. John's. Um, and, and, and it's a you know, nice community, 19 sleeping pods. It's not to knock that place, but there's a great deal of controversy about shutting down one tiny home village that has basically been self, it's been autonomous, it's been self-run. It, um, by all accounts, has been quite successful in not just stabilizing the people who live there, but being a transitional location for people to move into other housing uh, for five years now. I mean, that's quite a long time. And so they're going to shut down Hazelnut Village, uh, Hazelnut Grove, rather. Um, and the people are saying, you know, the the, the need on, out there and the need on the streets is so dark. Why can't we have both? Why can't we have a variety of options for people and and the residents or some of the residents of Hazelnut Grove um, have actually uh, they are campaigning they've campaigned against the city to retain their location stay where we are not have to move into basically another organization's operation and, and follow their rules and do what they want them to do into a whole different location they want to keep their homes and um, that's a great discussion to have on really where does the needle fall on how far the you know portland is willing to go with uh people who are are creating their own housing creating their own community and why should that be shut down so a lot of conversations to be had around hazelnut grove and and still the you know the deadline looms um i think in just a few weeks when it's going to be told it has to pack up and leave i feel like this is the same conversation we've been having surrounding um autonomous homeless camps for ages. I remember the right to dream too controversy and it's it just seems like it's all the same over and over and yeah. over again. Sorry, I'm sorry. It it, it does. It, you know, it it's it constantly comes up. It's because it's an important conversation and it's actually fascinating and a logical conversation to have about where people are going to live. I mean, 20 years ago, Dignity Village started with just a group of people who were living on the streets of Portland, who had had it with being rousted and told to move uh, constantly and constantly on the move around the city. And um, there's a great history to Dignity Village and how people organized when when people never thought of unhoused folks getting organized, you know, certainly not in Portland, um, and created Dignity Village, which is now 20 years on, a quite stable, sanctioned community village um, on the edge of town, and it's it's working quite well for people it works for. And um, to, you know, that, that's the model that Right to Dream 2 and um, Hazelnut Grooves and, and other communities that have come together for survival have really patterned themselves on in that self-governing. Um, and, and I want to bring up something, you know, briefly in relation to that. So, this morning I learned that a 27-year-old person experiencing homelessness died from burns they suffered when their um, 
their housing caught on fire. Their makeshift housing caught mm. on fire. They were they were alone. They were um, you know the fire department got there, but not in time. Um, the person was trying to stay warm in the cold weather, and and there are those little makeshift housing uh, individuals all over the city, right? And mm-hmm. and and the safety that a small community, a self-governed community where people support each other, um, is is essential for a lot of folks. So that that kind of isolation um, and then loss doesn't happen. So you know, there's real safety in numbers and there's communities that develop for real reasons of survival and it seems like you know now we're listening to the city talk about actually supporting those kinds of communities and seeing what they can do Um, so I think there's a lot of potential for interesting conversations this year yeah I agree I think um, with Dignity Village as an example there's like it's amazing to me that we haven't done more of that kind of thing so uh, what's next for the residents of Hazelnut Grove well, um, in all likelihood, they are going to have to move, and I think that there's uh, some are uh, have said that they're fine with moving into the new location um, in St. John's Village, and others are hoping to uh, convince the city to let them stay, and those discussions are going to happen uh, among city council members, and we'll see what happens. Well, Dan Ryan and the other new commissioners have a lot on their plate, don't they? Definitely. Joanne, the executive editor of Street Roots, thank you so much for joining us this morning, and we look forward to our next conversation with you. Thank you. Take care. You too. That was Joanne Zuhl, the executive editor of Street Roots. Thanks to Joanne for joining the local, and thank you for listening to the local, your hometown, in just about 30 minutes. Thank you for subscribing and giving a five-star review. And thank you, Democracy. We'll talk to you tomorrow. X-Ray.